You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Doing and Believing, Philip Edwards will consider the social justice and the evangelical tradition in this week's study. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Good evening and welcome to uh, week three of this study of uh, the traditions uh, that the Christian follows. Let's pray before we start. Father, we just thank you for uh, your truth and your word and the, uh, the presence of your Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us and guide us into truth. And so we submit ourselves to listen, to hear, but Lord, we need your strengthening to put it into practice in our lives. And we ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the characteristics, I've called them traditions. A tradition is something that is handed down to you. So this Christian faith that we follow, that we believe, it's been handed down to us over 2,000 years, obviously from the life of Christ uh, and through all uh, the different facets of the church. These characteristics, these traditions that are so um, I don't know, important to us, uh, they are the life of Christ, his, his particular uh, characteristics, his strength, the way he lived his life. I'll give a brief recap because we've done three and we've got three more to go. The first characteristic we looked at was that of living this contemplative life, that the, the soul of Christ was always focused on his father. We could term this, he practiced the presence, always in his presence, always knowing that God was there, and somehow his soul was always fixed upon him. Scripture tells us he imitated his father, it also tells us in Ephesians, we too are to imitate God. You think that's a bit of a tall order, but if Christ imitated his Father and he lives in us, it's not such a tall order. We've just got to allow his life to flow through and not clog up what he wants to do in us and through us. The Word of God says he only did what he saw his Father doing, so he knew all the time because his soul was always fixed on him. He said, by myself, I can do nothing. In other words, I don't, I don't think what I want to do all the time. I'm not making my decisions. I know the will of God. He said, the words I say to you are not my own words, but only his words. I hear him and I say what he says. And he said, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work that I'm doing. He also said to Philip, remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he lived out this life because his gaze was always upon him. This is this contemplative life. It's not so much going to God and then going away from him into the world and doing our thing, but constantly our gaze, the gaze of our soul is upon him, practicing his presence. Then we moved on to look at the holiness tradition. Uh, this is to do with a virtuous life, living 
a holy life. Growing up, Jesus trained himself and he disciplined himself to always respond appropriately to every situation. This is really what holiness is. We must move away from this idea of being perfect or pious in some way, but simply uh, responding appropriately to everything. And we do this by training ourselves. Uh, sometimes we get angry with ourselves because we didn't respond in a holy way or the right way that we should have. But if we haven't trained ourselves to do it, we simply won't do it. Jesus grew up. It says he learnt obedience and uh, he was tested in all ways like us. So this holy living that we looked at is more about training ourselves to do it. Christ's response was always measured in every situation. He didn't react out of fear or anger or indifference. He was cool. You've probably never met anyone as cool as Jesus, okay. Now that didn't mean sometimes he didn't say no or he didn't get angry because that would have been the correct response. When he drove everyone out of the temple, that was a very angry demonstration, but it was the correct response. It was the response that God had. And so he knew the mind, the heart of God and that's what God would have done, and so that's what he did. So we don't try to be holy. We train ourselves to be holy. That's important for that one. Moving on then, we looked at the charismatic tradition, uh, ones that perhaps knowing my audience and the audience of people who are watching this online, they're more of that tradition. Uh, so you probably know more about this, this tradition than any other Jesus lived and moved in the power of the Spirit, uh, the manifestation of the Spirit within his life. What he did amazed people. His preaching amazed people. His deliverance amazed people. His, his healing, uh, the ministry of healing that he did, just things that he did was supernatural. It was beyond the normal thing. Then he sends out the 12, we know, and he appoints them and anoints them, and they do miraculous things as well, preaching and healing. But then he sends out the 72, just ordinary old disciples, just people like you and me, and they do the same things. And remember when they came back, how amazed they were that they even had authority over evil spirits, and of course they'd never seen anyone do that before, and yet they knew that they too had been anointed which means if they can move in the power of the Spirit, then so can we. This evening, we're going to look at a couple more traditions, one before the break and one after. The first is social justice, and the second one is the evangelical tradition. I'm sure, knowing my audience as well, many of them will have appreciated the, uh, the evangelical tradition. Uh, some have got themselves involved in social justice and some not. So we're going to look at these two tonight. So the social justice tradition first. The compassionate life. We're looking at that, the compassionate life of Christ. We looked at all these other characteristics of his life now, this compassionate. Remember when Jesus went to his hometown and preached for the first time, 
the people were excited that he was coming. They'd heard him because he had preached in other places, but never in Nazareth. And so they were excited. They all knew Jesus. They knew him from a boy growing up. They were excited that this person was being anointed by God and powerfully used and doing miracles and everything. So the place was packed that morning. Everyone was waiting to hear what he had to say. It starts off really good, positive, and it says the people really enjoyed what he was saying. But then he got to a point in his sermon when it all went a bit wrong for the congregation. This is what he spoke from, and he was speaking from Isaiah, you remember. We read it in Luke 4, 18 and 19. He said this, quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. You see, he came for the poor. This is where this whole message of uh, social justice tradition comes in. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He said, I've come to change the way society is the way it, it clamours to the rich and the famous and for people to, to be rich and famous, but the poor are just despised and cast to one side. Of course, these words, like I said, they came from Isaiah and it was his prophetic message of uh, what was going to come in, as it were, in the year of Jubilee. I'll explain that in a minute, what the year of Jubilee is. Jesus was saying, now I have come the year of Jubilee is permanent. It's perpetual. Before you had to wait 50 years for the year of Jubilee, but now I've come to establish it forever. I've come to minister to the poor and those imprisoned and those naked and those blind. I've come to turn society around. I've come to show you what God's society should have always looked like. What is this year of Jubilee then? The Jewish society lived in 50-year cycles. Seven lots of seven, 49, and then on the 50th there was this year of Jubilee. If we just take the seven, uh, six years you were to work the ground, the soil, but on the seventh, every seventh year, you were to leave it fallow. You weren't supposed to grow anything or uh, you know, pick any fruit or anything, just leave it. They never did that at all, did they? Ever. Once. And that is why they went into captivity. Because for 490 years, they never followed this. And he says, well, you will go into captivity then for every year that you failed to keep the jubilee, the, the seven jubilees, as it were. So the, fifth, the 50th year, and this is what Jesus was preaching on, was the year that everything went back to as it was at the start and we restarted life. So if you got yourself into hard times and had to, or the very worst, be in slavery to someone or even have borrowed money, when it came to the year of Jubilee, all debts were cancelled. If you were a slave, you were released. If you had forfeited land, that land came back to you. It was your land again. It was a restart. God, uh, as it were, redistributed the capital that was in the country all over again. So 
when those people in Nazareth that morning heard that sermon, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. All you people who are living off the backs of other people, all you people who are rich, this is over. I've come to establish the kingdom of God. If you really want to honour God in your life, the year of Jubilee is now and forever. You don't live off the backs of other people anymore. You look after the poor, you look after the naked, you look after the blind, you look after the weak. Your job now is to look, you see how they got angry? Have you wondered why they got so furious they want to throw him over a cliff? Because it was affecting their very well-being, their life, everything that they had. Now I've come, he said. The year of Jubilee is perpetual. There's a shorthand term that Jesus uses for this year of Jubilee, and it's this, and he says it many more times than speaking about the year of Jubilee. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what the year of Jubilee is, the kingdom of heaven, living in the way that we were supposed to live under God's rule. He said, that's what I've come to establish Christ's vision was an alternative to what was happening in Israel at the time. A social vision that was so much different. Here's a question for you. I'll bring it right up to today. For 20 years, our government has had the problem with these refugees coming across the channel and presenting themselves on the shore of England. I say 20 years because that will take us through a Conservative government and into a Labour government. But they've done nothing about it. They've still done nothing about it. And people are coming and children and mothers are dying and drowning and we've done nothing about it. We haven't. What have we done? Nothing. We haven't created ways in which we could stop the traffic in, or we, we've made noises and we've blamed France or whatever, whatever, but our government has done nothing. Now, I'm not supporting one party or another. What I'm saying Christians need to do is hold all government to account if there's injustice. And there's an injustice here. See, if Jesus was ruling, he would have dealt with that problem year one. He would have responded in the way that the kingdom of God would have responded to such a terrible situation. Jesus makes this point in Luke 5, 37 and 38. You might have never have read it in this particular context. It says in Luke 5, 37, 38, no one pours wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into a new wineskin. Was he saying the way that the kingdom of God is, is no way, acts in no way that the kingdoms of this world act. It's quite different. So you can't fit Christian structures into the ways of the world. They don't fit. They're diametrically opposed to one another. It doesn't matter what system you go to, whether it's uh, you know, different uh, political structures all over the world, they're all diametrically opposed to the gospel. 
So if we want the structure of social justice that Jesus wants, it'll never be in this world because there's always tension between the two. Jubilee life then demands jubilee structures. In the Beatitude, we see something of this, what I call it, a jubilee inversion. Remember, he says, it's the poor and the meek and the, uh, the lowly and, and people who are oppressed. He says, you will be the blessed. He's, he's turning the whole social structure of things upside down when he speaks on the Sermon of the Mount. Those who are broken down in society, the unblessed, the unblessable, are shown God's kingdom. They are forgiven, received, accepted. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, in his many messages, to bless those who curse us. Don't condemn anyone. Forgive people. Give. Lend expecting nothing in return. And do not judge. The kingdoms of this world don't adhere to these ideas or thoughts. It's completely opposed, you see. This is how Jesus lived, constantly reaching out all the time to the rejected in society, those with leprosy, the widows, the beggars, the slaves. He was reaching out all the time. He was saying, listen, the kingdom of God is a society where we'd have to turn everything on its head. Isn't that what they said about the early disciples? They've turned everything upside down. They were getting it right. They were ministering to the poor and to the broken that society couldn't care about because they were so much caring for the rich and for people to become more rich. And God said, this isn't the way the kingdom works. We'll turn it upside down. A little verse that notes the response of the people to the ministry of Jesus in this respect. It says in Luke 7 and 16, they were filled, it says, the people were filled with awe and they praised God. They said, a great prophet has appeared amongst us, they said. God has come to help his people. The poor, the weak, the broken. Jesus came. That was his message, you see. Yes, he came as a charismatic. He came as a man whose heart was focused on God. Yes, he came living a holy life, making those appropriate decisions all the time. But this was another aspect of his life, another character that flowed from the life of Christ. When John the Baptist sends two of his followers to find out if Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus responds. Do you remember Luke 7, 22 and 23? He said, go back and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. He was asking, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised one? Well, he says, go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who are leprous are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. See, he came with the social gospel. He came to help the poor, to reach out, to lift people up who were despised and rejected in society. That was his vision, to bring about social change. The messianic kingdom of perpetual jubilee has come.
Hmm. The zealots weren't looking for that, were they? Jesus was everything except what they wanted him to be. They thought it would be like a fight, uh, an overthrowing, like King David, you know, taking his throne by force. And he didn't do that at all. In their eyes, he was weak and foolish. Because, not in God's eyes, Jesus came with a love and a power for a divine community of people. Zacchaeus embraced this, uh, this jubilee life, didn't he? Remember? Uh, up the tree there, looking because he was being elbowed because of his selfish way of living. He comes down from the tree, meets with Jesus. Uh, I don't know whether he did this, but he promised to do it, remember? Give all that he had taken away and pay back four times what he had defrauded. Well, it might have been a bit uh, OTT, but um, something had happened in his heart that he, been, he would think to be a fair man, uh, an honest man. He had accepted the kingdom in the way that Jesus had brought it. We think of the, the old lady, remember, at the treasury. She drops in the two copper coins. How do you see that woman going home after dropping all her money in the treasury? You ever thought about that? Oh, poor old soul, you know, going home. I think she had a skip in her foot, don't you? She had, she had, she had enjoyed something. She had seen something of what the kingdom was all about. And she was only too pleased to invest all that she had in it. And she was full of joy in what she had been able to do. Jesus shows this inversion of the kingdom that I'm talking about in washing the disciples' feet. We find how strange a thing it was by Peter's reaction to the whole thing. No, you'll not do this. Kings don't do this. Well, he says, this king does. He washes his followers, his servants, his disciples' feet. An inversion. Then he prays for a divine community. John 17, 21. He prays that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be one in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. Imagine a world, a kingdom, a society where there's no pecking order. We just don't know what that would be like because there's always pecking orders. Whether someone's got more money or smarter or prettier, there's always pecking orders. Imagine a society where there aren't any. We're just one. We're not judging things all the time by the externals. We're just one. That we are one father and they will be one like us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the Jubilee way. He'll not resist his accusers. He knows how to accomplish his goals. It'll be brought about by suffering, not by power, but by suffering. If you've ever worked amongst the poor, it's hard work. You're working with suffering, and you suffer as a consequence. You maybe think these people will be very grateful for what you do, but they show you no gratitude at all. You give them something and they say, is that all you've given me? 
they take and take and take more. And you're thinking, really? I don't know if I want to do this. But it's suffering, you see. The people that you're working with have been downtrodden and they're suffering. So you meet them in a place of suffering. You identify with them in that place. We're reminded of the future social revolution in Revelation 21 and verse 4. There'll be a new heaven, it says, and a new earth. This world has got itself into such a mess. I can't correct it. I can't put it right. It, it's not possible. In Revelation 21 4, it says, He will, God will, wipe every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine a society where there are no tears, only possibly tears of joy, but no tears of regret or remorse or sadness or disappointment or heartbreak. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things, he says, will have passed away. He was showing us what it would be like, the vision of his society, as it were. This is Jesus' social vision of perpetual jubilee. It embodies all we mean and desire when we speak of the social justice tradition. Jesus living out justice and peace in the world. Why we need to look at this whole aspect of his life is because it will challenge us. See, we've grown up in this society, in the kingdom of this world, and we don't realise how much we've taken on board its values, its thinking, its attitudes, and we think we're sort of doing all right, but we need to see this in its fullness and see what Christ did. It challenges our vested interest. How do I benefit from this? We always ask. What do I benefit from this? It rebukes our individualism. I'm all right, Jack. Do you ever have that feeling when it works out all right for you? Oh, that's good. But what about everyone else around you? Did it work out well for them? It questions our self-hoarding. Do I really need all of this stuff when I know that so many people have so little? Do I really need all this and buy more and buy more of it? Is it really essential? It invites us to be the people in whom justice and compassion flows, as it did from Jesus. That's all I want to say about the life of Jesus. Now I'll do what I uh, do at the end of each one of these uh, uh, traditions that we look at. I picked on three people that have well, sometimes they have affected me. What they have done or what I've written about them have affected me. Obviously, if they've passed away, they haven't personally affected me, but uh, some of the things that they've said and done have. The first one is someone who's still alive. It's uh, Jackie Pullinger, um, who works out there in Hong Kong, and um, I'm pleased that my son also works with her. He, she's his boss and has been for about six years now. I'd like to read a short synopsis of her life and uh, lives of others that I've selected here, the three I've selected. Jackie Pullinger then, born 1944. 
At the age of 22, Jackie went to Hong Kong following the advice of her friend Richard Thomas. She arrived knowing no one, with $10 in her hand. She found work as a primary school teacher in the Kowloon Wall City, which in the 1960s was not policed and consequently had become one of the world's largest opium-producing centres run by Chinese criminal triad gangs. Later, she established a youth centre and helped the drug addicts break free from their addictions through the power of the Holy Spirit. The ministry expanded and grew to be one of the most successful drug rehabilitation centres in Hong Kong. She pastors a thriving charismatic church with an emphasis on the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And I counted a privilege to have met her and to know her. The second is a couple uh, known to, I would think, most Christians. That's William and Catherine Booth. Um, William was born in uh, 1829, died in 1912, and Catherine, 1829, died in 1890. They were the co-founders of the Salvation Army. The Booths married in 1855, uh, left the Methodist New Connection denomination where William was a minister five years later and started a philanthropic and evangelistic mission in the East End, Whitechapel District of London in 1865. They went to the poorest place that they possibly could amongst the people who had been discarded. A lot like we read Jesus ministered to these same people. That's where God had sent them. That's where they had the heart to to work. Basic to their ministry was first meeting physical needs through the network of social relief and rehabilitation agencies and then filling spiritual voids through gospel preaching and lively worship. Both William and Catherine were effective preachers and William served as the army general. Always worth reading something of their lives or their story really, just to will motivate us. The third person, it will be no surprise, is Mother Teresa, um, 1910 to 1997. Mother Teresa, honoured in the Catholic Church as St. Teresa of Calcutta, was an Albanian-born nun and missionary. She founded the Missionaries of Charity, an order that dedicated themselves to caring for the destitute and the dying. In 1979, she received the Nobel Peace Prize. She set up soup kitchens, a leper colony, orphanages, and a home for the dying destitute. She treated the lepers, she educated the poorest of the poor, and fed the homeless. She treated them like they were members of her own family. There are perils whenever we uh, hook on to one of these traditions, we drive forward in it and we exclude the others. This is a danger that we can get into. The best Christian life can hold all of these uh, different characteristics in balance in your life. I'm sure there's going to be a strength and others are going to be weaker, but we're more balanced as Christians if we can hold all of these traditions together. We'll be more like Christ. So some of the perils. Ministering to the poor can become an end in itself because the need is so great. You minister to this poor person only to find there's 10 more behind 
And so you just minister, minister, minister to the poor, to the poor, to the poor, all the time. The needs are so immediate and demands of justice so great. Sometimes the message of the gospel is lost because the needs are so overwhelming, you feel you run out of time to share the gospel. That's one of the dangers. After the holiness tradition, it's prone to judgmentalism. Unless you're doing this, helping the poor, you're not really a Christian. Well, that's a bit harsh, isn't it, really? But that's how it comes across sometimes. Um, so it's prone to be judgmental. Mind you, so is the holiness movement. That's really prone to being judgmental as well. Christians who are not fully involved are condemned by those who are. Social justice becomes very political, as I said in what I was sharing with you. We must be careful not to identify with any one political party, but be a voice holding them all to account that they provide justice and uh, an order in society. That's our job as far as politics goes, I believe. Practicing this social justice tradition be open always to God, because if you see something, it could be the Spirit of God that's showing you, and he wants you to do something about it. Others might not see what you see, but you see it, and so you respond accordingly. We can become advocates for the powerless. Sometimes they can speak, but they haven't got the opportunity or the platform but you can make a way for them and be a voice for them, speaking up for them. We could support relief agencies, giving money or even volunteering your time to support something of the week. Get involved in influencing public policy. Uh, use our literary skills uh, in the case of the poor, writing on their behalf if you have those skills or you can take your work of prayer into the social area, take on the principalities and powers incarnated in the institutional structures where you see terrible injustice, start to pray that these will topple and then God's justice will break through. Finally, I just want to end with a little word of caution. Don't try to answer everyone's cry of human need. It's too vast. It's too much. Just do what you can do. I think I quoted Mother Teresa before on this. She said her plan was to feed the whole world and they mockingly said, how are you going to do this? And she said, one at a time. And I think that's just brilliant. Just deal with this person you see in front of you because you know there are hundreds more, thousands more uh, that you could help. You can't respond to every injustice in the world. You'd be writing letters morning, noon and night. You'd be on every, uh, you'd be, you know, lobbying politicians. You're just, it's too much. It's just too much. God knows we're finite human beings. He's infinite, but we're finite. So we just um, do the bit that we can do to make a change, to change this society in the way that Jesus would want it. Bring about the kingdom of God. Thank you. We move on now to the fifth of uh, our traditions, the evangelical tradition. It's the word-centered life. It seems that the most important thing 
that we have as evangelicals is God's word. And we, we focus our attention on this rather than the other things uh, that we've looked at. It, fe- it focuses on the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of salvation. The evangelical is taken up with the idea of proclaiming the gospel, getting people into the kingdom through preaching. It says that Jesus came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He was a person who not only spoke it and preached it, because he did from village to village, synagogue to synagogue, wherever he could, but he embodied what the gospel was, what the good news was. What is the gospel of salvation? What is the good news of the evangelical? It is that all people can enter into a living and an abundant life with God in his kingdom of love now. And this reality will continue on and indeed intensify after death. The message of the evangelical is you can enter in to the kingdom of God. God welcomes you in. How is this possible? It's not that the kingdom of God didn't exist before Jesus came. It did. All through the Old Testament, it's not spoken about in those terms, but there was the kingdom of God. Before the incarnation of Christ, its availability was only through the Jewish community. In fact, if you wanted to enter into the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, you had to become a Jew. As you could, as an alien, come and, and become a Jew, but that was the only route in. Of course, when Jesus came, he opened the gospel to the whole world. It wasn't just for this group of people or people wanted to identify with them. The doors of the kingdom of God were open to all. Jesus was absolutely clear that he was the door to the kingdom. There was no other way in which people could come to God apart from through him. He said, didn't he, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He said that he was the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. Jesus himself then is the way, the only way to come freely into God's great kingdom of love. So should we all be evangelicals at heart first to get people into the kingdom? Is Is that the priority? Is that the primary thing that we should be doing? And these other things then are outside of this priority? How do people come into the kingdom? Well, it's by God's grace and through faith. We receive God's love and we enroll ourselves into this kingdom and we learn how to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We follow him in everything that he did. We learn from him and we receive the strength of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live the way that he's called us to. We live as though he was living in us or in our place. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? 
in this situation. Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom everywhere, telling everyone it was available to all. He also demonstrated it in the reality of his presence. He said, and he did. It says in Matthew 4 and 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. Mm. Some evangelicals only do the first bit, don't they? Happy to proclaim, but when it comes to the charismatic bit, the charismata, that gets lost. They, as though somehow this isn't important. Well, to proclaim a message without enacting the message is only half the message. People want to see it with their eyes, not only hear it with their ears, and when they see it and hear it, there's a greater opportunity to bring them into the kingdom. He gave the same commission to the Twelve, remember, when he sent them out. He didn't send them out with any less power than he had himself. It says in Luke 9, 1 and 2, when Jesus had called the Twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Notice it brings the charismatic bit, the spiritual dynamic of it first, and then they were to preach the gospel. Isn't it funny how we have turned that around? We preach the gospel and then we seek to follow it up with some signs, whereas he clearly puts that before them. He did it the same when he sent the 72 out. Listen to what he says in Luke 10 and 9. Heal the sick who are there and then tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Oh, that would make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? I mean, if you see the miraculous and the healing and people being raised from the dead, and then you say, now listen to the message I have, you're more likely to listen and to receive the message than if you see nothing demonstrated or no power demonstrated. In this dual action, we see the evangelical tradition and the charismatic tradition is so interwoven you can't separate them. So I can well understand that many evangelical churches embrace the charismatic but often it doesn't work for them as they would like it to. So they steer away from the charismatic and just stay with the evangelical one. It's a very sensitive area, okay, but I think if we've got the evangelical bit sewn up we should be working a bit more on the charismatic so we, we bring the two together and we're true to scripture. In Jesus, all the traditions functioned as one. He was evangelical, he was charismatic. He was holiness, um, he was fixing his eyes on God all the time, uh, he had a heart for the poor and the injustice. All the traditions came together in Christ. No wonder you listened to him. No wonder no man spoke quite like this man spoke. Somehow he could hold it all together and present it all. The balanced Christian life, see, somehow holds it together and we present it all. While we're telling someone about Christ, we're healing the sick and we're ministering to the poor. Our eyes are focused upon him 
and we're choosing to make appropriate decisions all the time in every situation. You say, Philip, it's a tall order. Well, I never said follow me. Jesus said it. And he meant it when he said it. What you see me do, do it. Didn't Paul say the same thing? He says, listen, you follow me as I follow Christ. So what I see Christ doing, I do. You do it as well. Because that's the way it works. In Matthew's Gospel, we read this. For the day of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Jesus had brought such a tremendous message of the gospel. I mean, it was just like so powerful as he moved around and demonstrated it and proclaimed it and it was so obvious to all. It said men and women would see and they would rush into it with force. This was so wonderful, so brilliant, so I must have this. Sometimes we want to see that in our church, don't we? We want to see it so people say, I must have this thing that you have. I must have this gospel. I must have this Jesus. I must have it. But it isn't hitting them with the same thing. So people aren't rushing in as we might expect them to. They found the pearl of great price. They found the treasure in the field. Sell everything, get hold of this, rushing into it. I found this thing of great value. I must have it at any price. That's what rushing into the kingdom meant. Zacchaeus, I mentioned him in the first lesson. He came rushing into the kingdom, didn't he? He saw something so fantastic about Jesus. He had to look upon him. And then when Jesus said, I'm coming to talk to you in your home, can you imagine the excitement in that man? And it transformed his life. He met with this person who demonstrated, spoke about the kingdom of God. Mary Magdalene, she came rushing into the kingdom as well. She had seven controlling spirits, as it were, driven out of her. She so passionately loved God because her life was so transformed by meeting this one who demonstrated the kingdom of God, the justice of God, the love of God, that she just, just gave him her everything. She witnessed him on the cross. And what sorrow must have filled her heart to think that this one who brought so much to her life was now dead. And then when he calls her name, Mary. Oh, 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 oh. Just the emotion of it, the power of it. Just, just overwhelming. And that man Nicodemus, he rushed into the kingdom, didn't he? He couldn't stay at home one night. No tossing and turning in his bed, couldn't sleep. So I've got to talk to this man. And he speaks to him. He comes to him under cover of darkness. But when he meets the living Christ, the, the expression of everything that's evangelical, he gives his life to him. And then in the Sanhedrin, he's testifying. He's speaking on his behalf. He's defending him, as it were. He was prepared to risk all for this man who so transformed his life. Another one who rushed into the kingdom.
But we also read that some didn't rush into the kingdom. Remember that young man who came to Jesus, the rich man? He said, I've kept all your laws. Jesus believed him. He loved him, it says. But he went away sad. He didn't rush into the kingdom. He didn't grab hold of it by force. We have others. Remember that guy at the synagogue when Jesus uh, was moving around and her, as a woman who's, uh, she needs deliverance. She's bending, stooping over and uh, he delivers her and he heals her situation. But the ruler of the synagogue, he was indignant about it. It says this in Luke 13 and 12. When Jesus saw her, this is this woman, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, are you set free from your infirmity? She was set free. But then a couple of verses it says, Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? Well, he wasn't rushing into any kingdom, was he? That was for certain. He wasn't rushing anywhere. It's a shame that religious, rigid observers, they kept themselves out of the kingdom. The door was wide open. Jesus was fully expressing it. And somehow they were so shrouded in religion, so bound by it all, they couldn't see the reality of it. Judas held back as well, didn't he? He never rushed into the kingdom. Those invited to the great banquet, they held back as well. Remember the parable of the banquet? The master invites many guests. Those who invited first offer these lame excuses. I've just bought a field or bought some donkeys or something or oxen. So I've just got married. Well, bring your wife along as well. No, it none of that, none of that. So he says, go then into the streets and bring the people. They said, we've done that, but there are more places. Go then, he says, into the country places. Go out and bring some of those destitute people that we were talking about in the first half. Luke 14, 21. Go out quickly, he says, into the streets and the alleys of the towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. You see this reaching out for the poor all the time. That's in the heart of him, reaching out. Sir, the servant said, what, your orders, uh, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. That's the evangelical message, that we fill God's house with people. This then is the message. He calls all who follow him to share his invitation with others. He says, go. Go and make disciples like I have, of all people. Take this message, take this evangelical message, take it with all the power of the Spirit of God, take it with the anointing so you can speak and convince people we're to make disciples. It tells us in Matthew 28 how to do it in verse 20, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. 
This is our call and our commission, to go. To go and share the gospel with others. It is the great tradition or the great heritage of the evangelical tradition. Now, there would be many notable figures, wouldn't there? Oh, so many to call upon. So I've picked on, they've all passed away now. Um, I picked on Charles Spurgeon, uh, C.S. Lewis, and of course, Billy Graham's got to be in there. I can't leave him out, can I, as a great evangelist. Charles Spurgeon then, 1834 to 1892. One of the most magnetic and successful preachers of the 19th century England, Spurgeon began preaching at the age of 16. By 20, he had been asked to pastor a Baptist church in London and his preaching drew such large crowds the church had to be built had to, the church had to build an extension he preached at a public hall while the space was being added but it soon proved too small so while they were building it the more people were coming to this hall that they were hiring than going to the the church he preached in a public hall while the space was being added, but it soon proved too small. Finally, the church built a 5,000-seat auditorium to accommodate the large crowds. And Spurgeon preached there until his death. He preached there, I think, nearly 40 years. It was the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Elephant and Castle. doesn't exist there today. He would preach several meetings a week, and it would be packed in every meeting. It seated 5,000, but often 6,000 people turned up two or three times a week to hear this man preach. Wow, wouldn't you like to be in there? Just to be in that atmosphere and the power of that preaching. Wonderful, wonderful. My second choice is C.S. Lewis. I'm sure most of you have read, if not a few of C.S. Lewis's books, uh, at least uh, one of them. He was a tutor and fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford. Lewis wrote some of the most popular and creative books of the 20th century. But it is in mere Christianity which explains and defends the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times that Lewis shines. Beside Lewis's own writings, 30 books translated into 30 languages have sold millions and millions of copies. There are numerous biographies and two movies. Have you seen the movies? Yep, okay, the English and the American version of Shadowlands. If you haven't seen it, well worth watching. Okay, great story, wonderful. Um, my last one that I've chosen is Billy Graham. Uh, he died just recently, 2019, born in 1918, sorry, that died in 2018, so he just lasted 100 years, yep. Um, born in 1918, his life spanned 11 decades. 35 million Americans heard Billy Graham preach in person. 35 million Americans alone. More than 3.2 million people responded to the invitation to receive Christ into their lives at his crusade. He preached in 53 countries and via satellite reached audiences in more than 185 countries and territories. There's only about 250 countries in the world, so he had preached in virtually every country and territory in the world. 
Twice he preached to a crowd of more than one million in South Korea in 1973 and 1984. Two million people heard him speak during his 12-week crusade in London in 1956. Graham preached in huge physical spaces. Perhaps it's time for the next generation to learn how to use an even bigger platform of the digital realm to get the gospel message out to the masses. You see, the door is open now in a way that it's never opened before. Even this message, this humble message that I preach is out there and it's out there forever. Every message that's preached is now out there forever, can be looked at all over the world, listened to by anyone. And I'm just one of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are constantly preaching and the airwaves are full of the gospel that can touch people's lives. Potential perils now, because we can all get a bit um, into something. So I've got to um, warn you of these, uh, the perils of the evangelical church. The tendency sometimes is to fixate over the peripherals and the non-essentials. We can get into real big arguments about stuff that is peripheral. I know I said it's not important, but it's peripheral. And really, you sometimes got to go, is this worth an argument? Um, is there sufficient in scripture anyway for me to make an argument of it or is it just a peripheral matter? The matters of things that are important are obviously the things of Christ, his life, birth, his death, his resurrection. Those are the things that are primary. One of the problems with evangelicals is their over-concern for purity in the church. Sometimes it can be very judgmental and harsh on people. And it's driven people away from Christ who have never come back to serve the Lord or have been set back many years because of the legalistic, narrow, rigid attitude. They become letter bound, you see. The word says, therefore you mustn't do this. So it's as though doctrine comes before people. And we have to be very careful that we, we hold the balance of the two, to love people and to care for people, but also to hold to the doctrine is important. But sometimes we have to bend this way and then bend that way to just make sure we get it right. There's a tendency to present a too limited view of salvation. Salvation is broad in lots of ways. God doesn't, doesn't come to save our soul, that's primary, but he comes to save the world, he comes to save our lives, he comes to save society, humanity. Uh, in in the, the message of the social gospel, it's important that we love people, even if they don't give their lives to Christ, that we love them and support them and help them, that's the gospel. We want them to receive Christ, we know, but we, if we just make it narrow, if you're not going to receive Christ, then get out of the way, I'll talk to someone else. That sort of attitude, like if you're not really listening, I'll go talk to somebody who will listen. That's no good. So Christ came to save the whole world and the whole person. Evangelicals have a tendency to worship the Bible and not God. Be careful. I know he is the living word, but sometimes we get a bit stuck here and thinking, hang on a minute, this is a person. This is a person, not a book. 
How can we practice the evangelical tradition then? So little uh, tips. Let's get to know our Bible. Not worship it, let's get to know it though. It's vital for the evangelical. Read it in substantial doses. Okay, there's time to just read a verse or two and meditate on that. But really, we need to read big chunks of it at times. If you sit down to read a book in the New Testament, all of them can be read, maybe apart from Romans or one or two others, in a very short period of time. And so read big chunks of it. Study topics and books. Study them. Understand where their place is in the whole thing, how it all hangs together. Become familiar with Bible teachers. We should all have familiar Bible teachers that we enjoy listening to, enjoy reading their books, enjoy what they have to say. Read their books and let them open up the scriptures to you or listen to them, a lot of audio material around today. Get to know those around you, those you're going to share the gospel with, those who you are living your life in front of, you might not realise it, but they're looking at you all the time. They're listening and looking and so you're living the gospel and maybe the opportunity comes for you to share it, but you've really preached it to them all the time by your actions. So we need to be conscious of those that we live amongst and those that we work amongst. Learn people's interests. What do they like talking about? So I can talk to them, I can relate to them. Find out what their needs are, their hopes, their hurts, their dreams, their aspirations, their fears. Listen to them and then start to talk to them. And as you build relationship, a door will open for you to share the gospel with them. That's what we can do as evangelicals. Maybe few will stand here and preach as it were, but we can all preach to one to share the gospel with one, first to live it and then to share it. Let your life then and the words that you speak preach at the same time. Remember, the disciples were told to do and to say, and that applies to us. That's it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation to the ministry. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.